Hello everyone, I am Stefan Coritar and welcome to the Tech Talk Podcast. This is the show where you can discover insights and valuable information about how entrepreneurs build their startup in the tech industry and the way the tech business works. I have conversations about technology, innovation, people and life around tech businesses and communities with the main goal to help you get inspired, get started, dream big and build amazing businesses. My guest today is Emmett King. Emmett is Chief Operational Officer and Minority Shareholder at Virtec, a publicly traded European software and electronics engineering solutions company. He is responsible for implementing strategic growth and professional development plans as well as all of their operations. He is a businessman from America with over 17 years of practical experience in Romania. He loves living and working in Cluj-Napoca and has traveled to most of the regions of Romania enjoys a good knowledge of the country and its history and is working to improve his proficiency in speaking Romanian. Emmet is an entrepreneur with many decades of proven success in business creation and startups, strategic planning and execution, business development and management, sales and negotiations, client relationships, operational excellence, marketing and branding, team development and training and staffing. He has implemented those successes worldwide within a wide range of industries including software development, business consulting, training and development, international logistics, solid waste management, recycling, public accounting and auditing. Emmet is a good friend and I always, always learn new things when we talk. This is part one of the podcast. Emmet shared so many good insights and knowledge bombs that we had to split the episode into two parts. Enjoy this conversation and make sure you go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the show. Hi, Amit, and welcome to Tech Talk. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Thanks for like taking a couple of um, minutes, hours uh, to have a conversation about <laughs> something that is uh, very close and dear to us, tech businesses, business overall in general, and the startup ecosystem. So I'm really uh, keen on picking your brain around, around those things. <laughs> That's my pleasure. I've been an entrepreneur for a few, a few decades now. <laughs> So one thing that, you know, um, caught my eye while I was um, doing my kind of due diligence <laughs> on my guest, just to keep it in kind of startup terms. <laughs> um, one thing that caught my eye was um, your name, which is extremely, uh, let's say, interesting. But one thing is that it was very, almost similar to the Emmett King, the actor. So... Um, one thing that I have as a question, like, do you have some funny stories about having the, the, the name Michael Emmett King around that? Well, as you see, Emmett's my middle name, and uh, it's a little more unique. Uh, Michael was 50 to 70% of the boys uh, born back when I was born. So uh, to have uh, a nickname is a little something uh, different that I like. It's actually a family name. But what was funny for me is it's pretty common, Mike King you know, Michael King. But when I came to Romania, I found out that you put the last name first. And so at customs, I became Regile Mihai because I was <laughs> King Michael. <laughs> That's so, funny. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, I didn't even realize after you kind of, you kind of told me this and, um, I think I would, if I would be in your, in your shoes and in your place, like doing maybe mentorship stuff, like uh, different startup conferences, I would definitely crack a joke with, and opening a, a, a speech with, hi, my name is Reggie Mihai and uh, <laughs> I'm happy to be here. <laughs> it was, uh, was even more comical when he was still alive, you know, because I first came here in 2000 and mm -hmm. moved here in 2003. So he was still alive back then. And so it was, uh, it was quite a big deal almost every time I entered the country. Uh, connecting to back then uh, and coming to, to Romania, uh, that, that is the, kind of the second thing that, you know, I would like our listeners to know about you is why Romania? Yeah, so uh, Romania kind of chose me. I, I, didn't, uh, I, I didn't really choose Romania. Uh, when I was very young, 10, 11 years old, uh, I, uh, I had two goals. One was to be an entrepreneur and the other was to live outside the United States. The U.S. is great, but the world is much bigger. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the, in the U.S., I, uh, I became an accountant and then quickly left that behind and became an entrepreneur. Uh, after uh, after graduating college, about two three years of accounting, and then 
uh, started my first business, which was a failure, which was good because uh, I learned that the sun came up the next day and all my friends learned that they were right and, and I was a fool. And uh, <laughs> so kind of interesting and fun. Uh, I started uh, 10 different businesses in eight different industries over the course of the next 15 years in wow. the U.S. Um, and then realized that to, uh, 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 to accomplish my second goal, I would have to leave. And I never, ever thought it would be Romania. I traveled extensively through Mexico a little bit in Central America, and I thought that would be exotic enough and yet close to home. Um, mm -hmm. But if you want to make God laugh, you tell him your plans. And I did, and he laughed. And uh, I came to Romania in 2000 to visit a friend of mine who was uh, uh, teaching the banks about small business lending with money mm -hmm. from EBRD and USAID. And uh, on that trip here to, uh, to Romania, I met my future wife. Oh. And she didn't want to move to the States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So she didn't want to move to the States and uh, she knew that I wanted to leave. And she said, we can go anywhere, but at least I speak the language and have family here. So what about Romania? And I was living in Venice Beach, California, oh, uh, Venice right Beach on nice. the beach. And uh, it was a pretty big stretch to go from the sand to uh, the Transylvanian Alps. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I trusted my instinct uh, about her and, uh, and about Romania. And so I moved here. Uh, we knew each other for three years. Uh, she actually came to Los Angeles for, uh, for three months, uh, mm -hmm. the summer before I moved here. And uh, I moved here in July of 2003 without knowing what I would do for business. And I didn't do any business for the first 18 months. I mm -hmm. just uh, learned the language and, uh, and, and got to know Cluj and bought a piece of land. Because before I moved here, I didn't buy a piece of land and the price just kept going up and up and up. So wow. that was one of the first things I did uh, uh, in 2004, bought a piece of land and uh, biked all around Cluj and got to know Cluj and, uh, and, and the language. And very interesting, I didn't enter into Romanian uh, through business uh, because my friend was a banker and he was still here. And he said, you're a yeah, crazy exactly. entrepreneur. I'm not going to introduce you to anybody. You know, I'm a banker. So uh, I, uh, I started with, uh, with actors and, and, the, and the guys who work behind the scenes and playing football with them and going to some parties and, and, uh, and then slowly but surely uh, uh, looked for something over 18 months. And the first business that I, that I founded with some partners who had a nonprofit kids camp uh, and we changed it into a for-profit company called Adventure Camps. And uh, proudly, uh, that business still exists. I'm no longer part of it, um, but, uh, but the business still exists and still goes on. They do a good job for the kids. Wow, really? And they still keep the yeah. name and all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had Adventure Camps for the kids and Adventure Inc. for the adults. And I was doing consulting and training, team building. People said, oh, you're a good salesman. Give me a sales training. Yeah, you're very communicative. Can you give me a communication training? And uh, team building was something I had never done before, but uh, mm -hmm. I read a bunch of books and uh, I, uh, I, I understood uh, that, uh, that back in the day, it was really yeshire pe bani firmalor, you know, going out on the company's money. Yeah. And the books talked about the psychology of, of having uh, goals and, uh, and having a theme and doing debriefing and doing analysis and doing reports afterwards. And my competitor who became a friend after a few years uh, said that I really challenged him because he was pretty big in town. Mm -hmm. And he said that I really forced him to take a look and began to do real team building and not just going out and having fun. So it was, uh, it was yeah, quite, quite nice. Experience. That's super nice to find out that you were kind of the pioneer in setting up the kind of team building industry in I wouldn't say I was the pioneer. There's a, there's a couple of women out in uh, Aradia who have a business for 22 years. So they were mm -hmm. HR for Coca-Cola. If you remember, Coca-Cola oh, didn't nice. settle in Cluj. They settled out in Aradia for exactly. political the, reasons. The big factor, and yeah. they, uh, they did a great job. Uh, they taught me some things. We worked together. We collaborated. But they were more the pioneers than I was. They were doing it before I even moved here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's, that's super nice. I mean... Um that the company still exists did you kind of made yourself uh, did you exit it out of there or was it was it on on good terms and all that positive story uh, i would no it wasn't exactly on good terms uh, and people said to me see uh, it's romanians you can't trust them in business and i reminded them that i had partners in the us that we had problems with that i had problems with so uh, i think that you find out about people when there's too much or too little money especially in business 
and uh, with them it was time i wanted to concentrate more on the on the b2b mm-hmm. and uh, the, the camps really didn't make any money they had told me that it, that they were profitable and they weren't and so it was good fun it was a great way to learn romanian and uh, travel around romania see lots of places where we held ski camps and uh, adventure camps for kids uh, in the mountains all over the place uh, all all over transylvania anyway um, so, uh, yeah, I was, I would scout locations. Uh, I was not a, a, a camp counselor, but I would scout locations and, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and was the biz dev side of it, getting meetings with big companies to sponsor and as well as, uh, uh, but in kids camps, every teacher, every travel agency, every pensione is your competitor. So it's pretty tough business, yep. uh, to, to, to make some money. Um, yeah. But on the B2B side, uh, you know, working with the big corporations, uh, being American, it's easy for me to get a, a, a meeting with almost anybody in the country, even if they just want to say, do you really live here? Are you really an American that lives here? You know, I don't want to do any team building with you, but no, I don't need any consulting. I'm okay. I just, I just wanted to see if you really lived here. And the other aspect that was interesting down in Bucharest, where all the money is, or most of the money is, and certainly was more so back then, Cluj, you know, has grown a lot in the, in the 17 years I've been here. Um, Transylvania is, is respected down in Bucharest because of the Inchet Darsigor, the slow and the steady, mm-hmm. and people keeping their word. It's a, it, it was interesting. I knew the American part, but I didn't know that I'd, that I'd be respected for being Transylvanian down in the capital. Oh, I didn't knew that. I didn't knew that uh, Bucharest had this respect uh, over Transylvanian people, Ardeal. Yeah. yeah I, I kind yeah. of always uh, hear complaining them since being in, in kind of these um, the business activities, complaining them that we're too slow in taking decisions. Uh, the, the, that is a stereotype that yeah. is earned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can, I can, I guarantee you go to Bucharest, you have a decision in a couple of days, you're in Cluj, it sometimes takes a couple of months. Yeah, <laughs> uh, depending and, and, and a lot of different businesses. So, uh, uh, even now we find the same thing uh, that uh, that if you go to Bucharest and and even in uh, with, with with financing, uh, you know, yeah. the the guys in Bucharest, the gals in Bucharest make a decision pretty quick and they're in or they're out. Um, and uh, here in Cluj, it's well, I need to think about it. I've got to check and see. I want to, you know. So it's uh, it's a it's an earned reputation, yeah, uh, uh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you you said that you you know you traveled uh, a lot in in the early days of Adventure Inc. and scouting. What would be like? What are some of the things you absolutely love about Romania? Oh, it's 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 really quite interesting because physically you've got the mountains, you've got the Danube, you've got you've got the Delta. Uh, you know, the Transylvanian Alps are beautiful and and really untouched. Uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, so that's amazing. And then you got the cultural aspect of castles and fortified churches and painted monasteries. So it, uh, and the seaside, which isn't as exciting for me having lived on the Atlantic and the Pacific oceans. So the Black Sea is not quite as fun and exciting for me, but Romania kind of has a little bit of, of, of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it just needs some more infrastructure to get around to all the places. I agree that, uh, the infrastructure is a big lack in our country and hopefully with this new kind of um sad happy story maybe for us uh you know european union um uh, budgeting huge amounts of money towards let's say affected countries and so on and uh, we're kind of receiving a lot of money to improve our infrastructure so hopefully there's not going to be a lot of um stealing uh out of those money and actually get stuff done so you know after the uh, last night uh, elections Uh, Romania is looking pretty blue <laughs> in a positive, yeah, yeah. positive sense. <laughs> yeah, the other thing I didn't mention is it's quite interesting for me to travel around and 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 meet people. And uh, Romanians are are, are are certainly American files or American files. Uh, so so that makes it quite nice and interesting. But even traveling in the villages uh, and just meeting people and that, that uh, people you know uh, peasants around the around the world uh, are are the same. You know they live closer to the earth and you know, health and family is, is really what's important. And so in the beginning, when I was staying at places, there, there weren't so many hotels and pensiones and you'd stay in somebody's home and have to, you know, if you want a hot shower, you had to feed the soba and you yeah, know, all, exactly. of those, all of those things. So you really got to know people uh, differently than checking into a, into a hotel. And I literally have had my cheeks pinched by, uh, by Bunit, yeah, really? by grandma saying, you know, <laughs> the Americans, we've been waiting for you. You what took you so long and are you really an American? Uh, yeah yeah so so really warm welcoming good people 
yeah that's that's pretty common to have from uh, from bonica to pinch your um uh, cheeks <laughs> um and i i just want to kind of um slip into this uh, more maybe serious uh practical pragmatical thing and uh, go into kind of what you've done as an entrepreneur and um before going into kind of my first business-ish question i just want to ask you because you said you had your dream of becoming an entrepreneur and living outside of states at 10 11 years old how i know looking back how did you like did you made sense of how did you thought about entrepreneurship at that early stage in your life for me it was quite interesting living so close to new york uh, i was in a commuter town and nobody was smiling when they were getting on the bus or the train and nobody was smiling when they were getting off the bus or the train so the idea of commuting into new york and, and working for somebody else didn't look very appealing to me from the outside and uh, you know in america we're, we're sports obsessed and most of my coaches were small businessmen who didn't have to commute in they had their own business and mm-hmm. uh, we don't call them entrepreneurs at that you know they're small businessmen a family business and they I, what i found was that they had the freedom and the flexibility uh, because they had their own business and uh, my father was not well treated in a number of the companies that he worked for mm-hmm. uh, you know pension funds taken away and bankruptcies and uh, nepotism so from a quite a young age uh, I, i really looked Uh, differently at, at what was a career path for most uh, people in my generation was do what your dad did, get a job for 30 years and get the gold watch yeah. and the pension. And it still works. I have friends that have been working for, for 30 years at uh, good solid companies and will have good solid pensions. But I also know the other side of that story from my dad and from some of my other friends. So for me, it was about, uh, uh, about the freedom, uh, about the control control of my own destiny. It was pretty frustrating young because I, uh, I, I'm not a typical entrepreneur that had this great idea and that's what I was going to do. I wasn't going to, you know, build a, a, you know, an electric car or, uh, or, or anything like that. I just knew that I wanted to run businesses. And so it was somewhat frustrating not to know what business it would be. But what I thought of is I had a great accounting teacher in high school and uh, I figured that to, uh, to become an entrepreneur, either be a lawyer or be an accountant to learn how to run a business because the lawyers see lots of different businesses and accountants run lots of different businesses. And for me, the accounting system is like the skeleton of a person. Every accounting system, at least in America, it's different here in Romania. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a different system, but every accounting system is the same. And uh, when I graduated college, I started with uh, a very small firm, uh, working with very small clients, you know, garages and hairdressers and small factories and, And, and so I had to do all the books and the taxes. So do everything, assets, liabilities, everything, and, uh, and, and get to understand their business. And when I moved up to an international accounting firm, uh, I found out that it was really great because uh, my colleagues at those firms had been doing just accounts receivable or just accounts payable yeah. or just taxes. Yeah. And so uh, the idea of going through accounting worked out well for me. Um, that I got to see a lot of different businesses and a lot of ways that people ran their businesses. And the only difference between, you know, Joe's garage and, uh, and a big uh, auto firm is the number of people in the departments and the number of zeros, uh, you know, <laughs> in, in the accounts. And other than that, it's, it's, it's similar. Um, and also, you know, it was really interesting. I graduated with an accounting degree and people were like, you know, I didn't even know you were an accountant. And this, this stereotype of accountants that they're, you know, that they're bookish or that they're quiet, that they're not outgoing um, was so something I ran into quite often, uh, you know, at, at, at university and uh, as well as afterwards. Um, but um, public accounting is half people. And I'm very much a people person. And uh, uh, my sister was a psychology major and I read all of her books while I was still in high school. So that has helped me with my knowing myself as well as knowing mm-hmm. others. Now emotional uh, intelligence has come into the fore and that's what it's about. And so yeah. I'm very thankful to my sister. Um, and, uh, and so people and the numbers and, and businesses is, is really all about the, the, the people. And it, it certainly is for me and, and, uh, You know, the numbers, if the numbers are good, but you don't like the people you're working with, then what does it matter? Yeah, I'm, I fully agree. I'm 100% on board with that. And even 
us in our process right now in building our board of advisors together with Diana, we just we're looking at you know track history and what they've done and how they can help us. Um, in the same time, we're kind of assessing from a gut feeling and uh, emotional intelligence perspective of how does it feel with you know working with that people uh, with that person um, sitting by uh, by by him or by her. So it's really important, really really important because we kind of don't want to let's say wake up working along somebody that doesn't push us to grow but uh, does the opposite right it doesn't bring happiness and uh, joy working alongside them um yeah what i what i learned very early is you spend a lot more time at work than you do at home and most of the time you're home you're sleeping so yeah uh, really quite important and i've always looked at that uh, for partners uh in businesses and uh, and now in startups the same way yeah. you know trying to get that I, feel for the people and uh, can I bring value and can I get along with them? Can we argue? Can we disagree? And then can we move on? Yeah. And uh, that's really very, very important. Yeah, I agree. I just recently kind of let go of uh, of a project that wasn't bringing me kind of happiness and the team dynamic wasn't okay. So I kind of said, okay, guys, this is it for me. I'm not going to continue anymore because it's kind of affecting my mental uh, health and state and it's not working. So I've tried, uh, give it my kind of second chance, but it doesn't work. So I close that. But yeah, back in the, back in the team building days, uh, the Christian Daskala worked for me and, uh, and Christy said, mm-hmm. Emmett, come on, we can, let's drop the price and we'll get more business. And I said, Christy, I got a family and I'd rather work, you know, 15 to 20 weekends rather than 40 weekends and mm-hmm. make the same money. So if we keep the price high and do less work, we'll have the same profit. And I'll have some work-life balance with my young family. Yeah. And it was interesting uh, discussion with Christy back in the day. Yeah, we in our in our um, in our studio we did the same on the go-to-market services. We saw that the amount we put in in offering our services, our, our offerings, in exchange of a small amount in terms of pricing, uh, was bringing us kind of not a very good feeling about what we're giving as a value and wasn't appreciated. So that's why we kind of sit down and we went to through our buying persona and see our also our pricing strategy. And we said, okay, what kind of type of clients would we want to serve? And we kind of came to the conclusion that we want to you know, have uh, not a low price ticket, but we have um, average to high, smaller number of clients and more qualitative clients. So I, I agree with that. <laughs> kind of buys time for you back. Um, Emmett, but I want to kind of talk more about uh, your um, entrepreneurial history and coming, kind of make a history check um, and come to uh, nowadays where you are right now to Viewtech and uh, doing your um, startup ecosystem work. But before that, what is Continental Waste Industries? So what was Continental Waste Industries? Because yes. it was acqui- it was acquired back uh, back in the '90s, a little bit after I, I left the firm. Um, so it was a waste management company. Uh, and uh, uh, when I joined, I was the fourth I was the fourth employee, and I took over BizDev and uh, and sales. Um, they were uh, former accountants from an accounting firm that I had worked at that handled just garbage. In New Jersey, garbage is a utility and therefore the balance sheet and the profit and loss and the tax return is completely different. So it just so happened that this small firm I worked at specialized in garbage. Uh, and uh, they saw an opportunity when the landfills began to fill up. Uh, they saw the clients were uh, spending money on long haul. What the, what's long haul? Who's this new supplier? Mm-hmm. And they jumped into the business themselves. And uh, with uh, uh, four of the accounting clients, uh, it was that first year they made uh, about 800,000. Uh, and I joined them after uh, I was nine or 10 months. And uh, from there, what I did was I, I started to go and talk to every single garbage man within a 500 mile radius. So by the time uh, three or four years had gone by, we were shipping from Boston down to Baltimore. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we even shipped some out of, uh, out of Toronto. And uh, the, the explosive growth and the huge sales uh, primarily uh, came from acquisitions. 
but the brokerage division itself, uh, I was able to build that from under a million to 10. And then the other 15 million was, uh, was acquired businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, yeah, it was quite profitable, uh, obviously, because we were saving money. Uh, the landfills were filling up and getting expensive, and we were saving money by taking it to landfills further away. We also moved into uh, recyclables and uh, doing some brokerage of, of the recyclables themselves. It was a really good, interesting lesson of being the broker is, uh, is a good place to be. You're the middleman. You don't have to take ownership. You just have to set your margin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and you make money. So we were shipping upwards of 140 truckloads a day. Uh, when I started, we were doing less than 10. Wow. That's a, that's yeah. really a massive growth. It was it, a wave. It, it was yeah. a wave. I can't take all the credit for that. It was easy to go in and say, would you like to, st- would you like to spend a whole lot less? <laughs> and, and most everybody would say, yes, please. So it wasn't a hard sell. I don't like hard sells and it was not a hard sell. There was a mm-hmm. lot of competition, but it's also where I developed uh, uh, what I call in Romania, Concurrenza Prietinoasa, mm-hmm. friendly competition, because I yeah. found out that if the competitors didn't talk, then sometimes the clients would take advantage of and uh, say, oh, well, you know, Joe is picking up for, uh, for 45. You'll have to drop your price if you want it. And I called Joe and Joe says, no, Emmett. He hasn't paid me his bills. He's just trying to he's trying to switch to you because he owes me money. Oh, nice. uh, so it it was it was very very interesting um, and 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 helped by some open minded competitors mm-hmm. again people and getting to know people and and not having to fight all the time. So as much as getting to know the clients and the industry, I also got to know my competition and found those that I could talk to and and be open and honest with. And uh, it's something that I uh, uh, that I, uh, I transferred here in consulting and, and training, uh, where I sent out emails to uh, uh, to 250 training companies saying, "This is what I'm doing. It's outdoor adventure, t- you know, uh, uh, training, learning." Um, and uh, I I don't think anybody owns a client, so I'm looking to to, to collaborate. And uh, one of my very good friends, I even went to his wedding. He wrote back, <laughs> So literally within two hours, he was saying, who are you? How do you think that way? When can we meet? And we collaborated for years. We became friends. Uh, we're still good friends. Uh, so uh, even in training, I, I wore different shirts. And, uh, and, and they were my shirts. And, and we were concurrents of Prietanwasa. Not price fixing like the big boys do. <laughs> just discussing <laughs> the market <laughs> we weren't so big to control it but it was uh, it was really good uh, good to see because most people told me all oh, romanians won't you won't be able to do that they won't collaborate with you they won't tell you the truth and i just uh, i found you know that that's just like any country you find those people that are that are open to to honesty and being straightforward and uh, and it's worked out quite well even even now in tech it's the same thing yeah um i think every industry or yeah every niche has its own kind of potential or space for uh so maybe not all industries and definitely not i mean the business people or entrepreneurs there is still lack this kind of mindset of being in competitia pretenosa uh looking back to my conversations with different people you're one of the few people that said that they like to apply Competitia Prietanosa, so I don't see it very often. <laughs> it's usually the other <laughs> way around, and you know, cursing and saying, "Oh, that, that," you know, uh, so and so on. So, yeah, that's that's a, yeah. That's it's a, a good lose thing. lose. It's it's a lose lose. The client, you know, the client gets a lower price, and I'm stealing his business. He's stealing my business. I'm stealing his people. He's stealing my people, uh, so to speak. So I found it's just it's it's better to to to, to look for that win win not just in sales, but also in competition. Uh, and it doesn't always work. Uh, yeah. And it's, you know, but, uh, but it has worked uh, here in two different consulting and training and uh, now in, in, uh, in IT. Uh, when I came to Virtech, they had uh, three collaborators. Uh, one I knew I couldn't trust, so I got, I got rid of him. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we now have uh, well over 50, uh, not just in Romania, but in all of Eastern Europe. I haven't worked with all of them, but yeah. I've worked with Serbs and Hungarians uh, and, uh, and people all over Romania. Uh, right now, uh, you know, five to 10% of our workforce at any time, the billable devs is, uh, is from collaborators. 
Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's a business model that I was able to to help uh, here at BeerTech. Mm -hmm. I see this trend of you know uh, more and more people are kind of decoupling from the big big um, software um, outsourcing companies and building their own small shops and then becoming collaborators for the big ones. So that's a trend that I'm seeing. I even have a couple of friends that have, have uh, their own shops, like five, 10 people that are kind of specialized in one thing and then kind of run that, run that part. And coming back to the competition, Pretenasa, that one final thing I kind of have a remark is that if you, like your duty as an entrepreneur is that you have to take care of customer success and you know customer support and all that part in order to keep your client if not whenever you know they can always decide on various numbers of factors that they can go to your competition so if you kind of take care of those departments which romanians are not still kind of forefronters in customer care and customer support and keeping the you know the customer close and always happy and so on you know customer centric so they're not over there i've seen businesses that they uh you know do take care of customer care and like they are skyrocketing the customer doesn't leave when you gonna show him that you're a human you're here you're you want to him you know you want to support him uh in you know growing learning whatever your business model or what you're selling so that's super important but coming back to continental um what were uh kind of the growth challenges that you faced and like how did you overcome them like one or two examples that kind of was not an anomaly that but peaked the entire so time the, the wave was you know the wave was there and it was only going to last for so long so it was all about time that time pressure mm -hmm. building it as fast as you can uh hiring good people uh when uh, when i was the only dispatcher slash biz dev sales guy i made up a couple names for myself and had an accent so people thought we were a little bit bigger And also so that if I didn't have time for a conversation, I could say, oh, you know, at that time, Michael, and Michael's busy, he's in a meeting or something, but, you know, what can I help you with? Or, and uh, so finding good people, uh, I hired my brother uh, as one of the good people. And it was a great lesson uh, for us working together because he realized he didn't like business and he became a math teacher. <laughs> so it was, it was great. It was good for the two of us to work together. And uh, it was really good for him career-wise to see that he didn't want to be in, in business. Uh, so, yeah, the people, it's, it's, again, you know, we're back to the people again, having, having, having those people. And then the other aspect was the trust because uh, there, there was too much money and uh, it was not shared properly. It was not done well. We were promised uh, a, a lot of things from, uh, from the lion who had uh, the, the equity. Mm -hmm. um, so trust is, is another challenge when there's all that money around, you know? Yeah. Will you keep your word or will you take the lion's share? Yeah. Uh, so great experience. Um, the acquisitions, buying, uh, uh, hauling companies in, in other states and having to go there and run them and get to meet people from down the south when you're the guy from New York. Uh, always a challenge, you know, so that they could see that they could trust you and respect you uh, was, was great. And then learning the landfill business because they own landfills. Um, and so, uh, you know, that vertical integration. Uh, is 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 what uh, uh, is what brought uh, uh, you know as I said 15 of the of the 25 million in sales. There was a VC that specialized in waste from Chicago, uh, and they put us together with uh, yeah with the uh, it was back in the day it was early 90s. Nice. Uh, they put us together with another company that had three landfills, and we had had two landfills and hauling companies and those types of things. And once that was put together, then we got to the reverse merger, which I know you had asked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was reading about it, and I never heard about reverse merger. I mean, I know about mergers and uh, acquisitions, but what is a reverse merger, really? So it costs a lot of money in the states to go public. Lots of lawyers' fees, uh -huh. all kinds of fees. So uh, what what we did was we found a shell company on Nasdaq, and okay. we bought that for a quarter of a million instead of spending half a million or three quarters of a million. We bought that. We changed the name. We activated it and we were public in a few weeks. That's a super hack. <laughs> <laughs> That's it was not so my smart. idea. It was not my idea. It was the lion. He was yeah. a lion for a reason, but uh -huh. you know, he, uh, he, he found out about that hack and uh, it, it, uh, it, it was great. And we ran it uh, as our own company for um, a year and a half, two years. And uh, then we were bought out by a huge Republic waste industries. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of, of continental. I mean, it was still a division, 
Yeah. But uh, in, in the U.S., uh, you know, the bigger companies are always looking for smaller ones to acquire. Uh, you know, that's something that hasn't happened so much here in Romania. Yeah. Uh, but even in the next business that I looked into, uh, that we didn't uh, take it nationally because I ended up leaving the country. But the idea of, of finding businesses on the East Coast, in the middle and on the West Coast, and you buy them and now you're a national company. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the freight forwarding business, Air Sea International Forwarding, uh, is still quite divided and qu- a lot of mom and pops, just like the garbage business was back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a few big players, big publicly traded waste management was one of them and Browning Ferris Industries and, uh, and Republic was kind of a new guy that came up. But it's uh, I always love to compete against the giants. Uh, because uh, they don't take care of customer service and uh, they're not always watching all the pennies and they're not yeah. always looking and, and they're not as agile. I didn't know I was so agile back then, but <laughs> pivoting and, 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 and iterating. Uh, but it's always fun to take on, uh, take on giants. Speaking of giants and also Airsea International Forwarding, I know that you had a bit, big corporate signed uh, and that was Boeing uh, Aerospace. How did you manage to sign and, and keep a big client like that? And like, wh- what are the challenges to sell to like uh, that type of clients, enterprises, corporates? So the challenge to, 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 to sell to them and to keep them as a client is that they are incredibly uh, demanding. And um, uh, what, uh, what our partner down in Australia uh, used to say is, uh, is Rolls-Royce service for Rolls-Royce pricing. Mm-hmm. And it's hilarious. This, you know, Rolls Royce service for Rolls Royce pricing, Mike. So we keep the pricing high, and we're twenty four seven, three sixty five. Yes, you have to wear a beeper. Yes, you do. <laughs> and uh, so he actually was was uh, uh, he was the reason that we got the account because he knew my partner. We started the business myself and my accountant, who was a CPA, who was in a number of those businesses with me, um, probably seven of the ten. Um, And uh, the third partner was the guy who knew the business and brought clients. We were we were in the we were in the black in in, in less than six months. Uh, it was, you know, it's just a great classic way. Uh, I, I, I said to people, people ask me about raising money now as a startup. I say, I don't really know how to do it because I just always bootstrapped, <laughs> uh, you know, found partners that had clients or had the clients pay for it, which is what I tell the startups all the time to do. You know, it's validation and, uh, and you don't have to ask anybody for the money if they'll give it to you. Um, but so they knew each other and had done business and, uh, Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas and they had this little repair shop in Melbourne mm-hmm. and, Uh, it was a million, million and a half uh, uh, contract when we started it for a year, and we built it up to over three million. And the profit margins in in, in freight forwarding can be excessive, you know, forty to seventy percent, just like garbage. You know, I love wow. industries with excessive. Now, garbage is tougher because you have lots of property, plant, and equipment. You know, you got heavy trucks and compactors mm-hmm. and, and things you need for, for garbage. So you need that. But in, but in freight forwarding, you're the middleman and you don't need lots of equipment. You need a phone, and, you know. So, uh, so and with that, uh, with those profit margins, we were able to give uh, the incredible service that was needed. So it took Boeing a while to, uh, you know, any acquisition takes a long time. And if you, you know, how do you, how do you eat an elephant small bites? So by the time Boeing found out that they had this small freight forwarding company working for them at this one plant, uh, their uh, multinational freight forwarding partner was quite upset because they had a contract that they got all the work. And so we had to fight them for two years. The first thing we had to do was become ISO certified. Mm-hmm which sounds really impressive, but it's not. You just find a, a consultant and you yeah. pay him $10,000 and he puts all the books on the shelf and you're ISO certified in a exactly. couple of months. And, and then the- Boeing says, oh, okay, well, they're ISO certified. We can't kick them out. And they do a great job. Everybody loves them. Yeah. Uh, I literally had to jump on a flight from Los Angeles to Melbourne three times and carry a box on my lap. He said, don't even put it in the overhead compartment. Could get broken. You have to hold on to it. Uh, literally, that's, uh, you know, the, the idea of a small part stopping, you know, an airline from flying uh, was, uh, was, was amazing to me uh, to take a look at that. The other aspect that was really cool and interesting is who knew aircraft parts were temperature sensitive? There's all kinds of, yeah, so I had to have sensitive. a dry warehouse okay. and, and, and a cold warehouse. 
and, uh, and, and understand and learn. And that's why I have a beeper, because if the temperatures were dropping down, the, the power went out, the, all kinds of challenges. We had mm -hmm. to even set up our own small, uh, we, we bought some containers, some refrigerated containers, so that we began to, to just keep our own just for the high quality, because yeah. it's got a shelf life. And when it's you know outside of that temperature range, you're losing life. Um, but all kinds of, uh, they, they call it skins, which is what they use to repair the hull. Mm -hmm. And it's a, you know, it's a synthetic material that is keeps frozen. Then you defrost it. You can cut a piece and put it on and put the rest back in the freezer and they have uh, shelf lives. So, uh, so really challenging. Um, and then for Boeing, I had to put together a, a, an operations manual with, uh, with I don't know, 250, 300 uh, different suppliers from all over the U.S. that we were bringing in. And so it wasn't necessarily very complicated. It was just something to show them how professional we were to have a page or three about who everybody was, what are all the contacts, what parts do they have, how often do they come in? These, you know, and this was uh, this was pre. Uh, this is not all electronic. You know, I was doing it on in Word documents and then printing them out, and it was a <laughs> physical, you know, book uh, that when Boeing came to visit us, uh, they saw. And the last. We lost the business when they put it out to bid and mm -hmm. we bid for a 10% profit margin and the big multinational bid for a 5% profit margin and mm -hmm. we lost. So it was a great run. That's a, that was a mower. Yeah. It was a great uh, run. Uh, looking back um, on what you said as a, as an, as an example is that I remember also, I remember that one of uh, our customers was also asking uh, around some things that they were looking at us as an agency to become their service provider. And the one thing that was that they were looking for is to be certified as content marketers by HubSpot. And we kind of started looking into it that, okay, what does this mean? It means that this kind of big enterprise is interested to see if we have validation from other entities that we do a great job. Therefore, we have to start looking into it if you want to sign better deals, bigger clients. And that's how we started even the, since you already mentioned the ISO 9001, we started the process of getting certified. I think it's, I don't remember the number, but it's also ISO in terms of uh, innovation. Uh, so that's something that we, yeah. Um, Although it's funny, you know, get certified in innovation. <laughs> I kind of say it's it. It's the beginning of the end of innovation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> When you standardize you innovation. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was uh, very, listening to you, that was very similar to our experience as well. I want to come back to um, ARC International Forwarding and move on from that to Virtech, which is uh, the current company that you are involved in and uh, working at. And also it's your second company, which is listed on the stock exchange market. What I'm also interested is from your experience, what are some key benefits to list a company on the stock exchange market? And also what are some downsides of being a listed company? So reputation is one. Uh, clients tend to feel that you're, you're more responsible. You're, you're, you're better managed if, if you're, if you're a publicly traded company than a private, not always, but that's something that, that, that can uh, be helpful. Um, Access to, to funding. Uh, Virtek was doing low-level programming on the old Nokia phones. It's a spinoff from Nokia mm -hmm. back in 2001. And um, as we all know, Nokia did not see the smartphone uh, revolution coming. And Virtek lost, uh, they were working with Nokia, Texas Instruments, Microsoft Analog Devices. And um, within three months, uh, uh, and, then, and then Nokia stayed around for another six months, but they lost over 80% of the revenue. And um, what they had to do was to go back to the market and the CEO, uh, who was the majority shareholder, uh, he had to convince people to, uh, to in, in, in his dream and his vision and uh, come up with money to, uh, to make the transition uh, mm -hmm. to a, a .NET Microsoft house. Um, and uh, that took a couple of years. So being publicly traded allowed him to do that refinancing. Uh, he raised money in 2009 again in 2010. So uh, it's, and the last advantage that I see is one that's personal and also one for my colleagues. Uh, when I started, I said, you're publicly traded, give me options. You're 33 <laughs> people, I'm gonna build this thing with you. Uh, they said, no, 
Uh, and I said, why not? And I said, the Romanians don't really understand it and don't like it. And I said, well, you've seen my CV. <laughs> uh, I know options <laughs> and, uh, and I know the value. Uh, but they felt that it was it was a penny stock at that point, and they really didn't. They they really just said it would I, we'd be giving you away way too much. So uh, a few years later, of me asking every single year to the board of directors, uh, finally what they agreed to was an employee stock option plan. Mm-hmm. And so we had uh, three uh, three years, almost fifty of the colleagues, so almost half the colleagues. Um, and we'll have somewhere between 10 and 12% of the publicly traded Danish entity. It's on the OMX market uh, up in Copenhagen. Uh, and collectively together, all of us will have somewhere between 10 and 12% uh, of the company. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're right. The board knows that the Romanians don't understand it as well. You know, most Europeans say, give me $5, five euros this year rather than a chance for 20 euros next year. Um, but uh, the stock uh, has, uh, has actually uh, exploded. It's up uh, over 1,100% since 2014. Um, and uh, wow. so the options just get more valuable as time goes on. Uh, and we're still quite small, uh, still quite small. Uh, so, uh, so there's really room for upside. So, you know, the, the idea of sharing, um, the equity uh, and, and sharing that growth and, uh, with uh, with the colleagues is a story that's going to take a little longer for for most of my colleagues to understand it. But there's a few of them and myself that completely know that we have a real, uh, you know, and ten to twelve percent is not a tiny uh, percent. No, it's not. Uh, so it's a no, no. It's a it's a nice percentage for the for the employees to own. And also they use that with with they talk to clients about that, just like CSR. You know, this idea of employee ownership, clients. Mm-hmm look at you differently and think of you differently on the negative side, because you know, you don't get, there's two sides to every coin. Um, every year you have to predict the future and every yeah. quarter you have to tell everybody how good you're doing Forecast. <laughs> at predicting the future. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, nobody knows the future. You know, only God knows the future, but every year, every public company has to come out early in the year and yeah. say, here's what we're going to do this year. And it's nice. It's a range. Okay. And we used to do it twice a year, but for investor confidence and, and things, we've switched to four times a year this year, right during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so there is that challenge. Everybody knows your business. And if you're doing great, that's a good thing. But if you're yeah. not doing great, you know, then, then it's, it's more of a challenge. So that's what I see as, uh, uh, as, uh, as one of the biggest challenges uh, for being a publicly traded company. And Virtek is, is uh, uh, the, the board of directors owns about 60% of it. So there's advantages and disadvantages to that as well. If I want to do something, if we want to do something as a management team, we have to convince three guys because mm-hmm. they own the majority of the shares. Mm-hmm. And for some of the things they have to go to the, to, to, uh, uh, to the other shareholders. Um, but if, if it's something that's risky, then those guys are risking you know, 60 cents on every euro that we may lose on a new project or a product or a startup. And yeah. so therefore I cannot convince them to yet, not yet <laughs> to, uh, to build a product or invest in startups, whether dev for equity or outright cash. Mm-hmm. It's something that they do individually, but uh, due to Vertex history, they're, they're, they're keeping relatively uh, conservative on that side. And, and again, you know, two sides to, to every coin. Uh, so, yeah. uh, so from yeah. from from my history, uh, from my history, looking at the uh, deck slash tech for equity model, it's kind of hard to kind of blend those two, uh, the that one together with the classical business model of the software uh, outsourcing companies or software, uh, you know, uh, software solution offerings. And it's it's hard because you kind of have, like I said, two business models. And uh, when you start, you know, doing the accounting part, like how do you, you know uh, value the investments in startups and you know you don't actually get the ROI on that uh person that you kind of involve in some some other project so at least that's w- what i uh learned from the discussions that i had with different uh business owners in in this sector from from Cluj and kind of our fundraising hypothesis in, is built on that on the Gry Ventures uh, venture development studio is that you know you know uh, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing great. Your business is growing. And this is our kind of communication towards the software development agencies. But you definitely know that you, you know, 
you have to support the product development IP industry from within Cluj. So why wouldn't you invest in a guy in, in a you know venture development studio and we can take care of that like operations wise and sales and business development and all that part. I see this two aspects, Stefan. Uh, a product company is different than a services company. Mm -hmm. So when my colleagues say to the board, can we build a product? The board says, yes, what product would you like to build? Well, I don't know, but you know, let's build a product. And they say, if you come with a good idea, then we'll start a separate company yep. because a product company is different than a services company. And then we'll, we'll do that. But on the idea of dev for equity, um, it can also be mixed. You can charge, you know, instead of 50 euros an hour, you charge 25 and then the, and the other 25 goes towards your, your investment in them. So they get uh, a price and you still make money. Uh, so there's lots of different ways to do uh, dev for equity. Uh, it still is risky because it is a startup, yeah. uh, but uh, established companies go bankrupt and, and, and go out of business. Uh, at Veertech, we've had one of those in the seven years that I've been here. Uh, so, you know, that was no different than if we had invested that time uh, in, in the startup. When they went bankrupt, they, of course, they owed us some money and uh, that happens yeah. uh, in, in all businesses. It's just great. It's only one, one client in seven years, the seven and a half years I'm here at Veertech. So there's always risk, but startups uh, are riskier than established businesses for sure. And product is completely separate, yeah. completely separate. I agree. But we're I talking agree. about it. It would just yeah. be, it would just be a separate business, you know, probably in a separate building. I agree. I, that's a, that's a how, you know, uh, our entire venture development studio is structured. I mean, our, our proposition, when we go to possible investors, we explain them the entire structure of how we think about doing the ventures and every single product company that kind of spin off from the studio is going to be treated as a separate company with, you know, us being the, uh, the one of the shareholders within that company together with the corporates and so on. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, share, and review our podcast because the voice of our community keeps us going forward. Find more episodes and discover different perspectives about tech and business and in our daily life. Thank you.